Podcastle, episode 418, for May 31, 2016. James and Peter Fishing, by Anaya Lay. Rated PG-13. Hello and welcome to Podcastle, where imagination sometimes takes the shape of a giant stink bug. But not today. I'm your host, Graham Dunlop. Fishing. There are those who waxed lyrical about the art and practice of fishing, be it deep sea, river, beach, or angling. Seas of ink have been spilled in praise of this ancient art, extolling its virtues, raising it to an almost zen state of being. So that's not me. I'm one of those blokes who's tried fishing a few times and thought, yeah, I just don't get this, it's boring, and I could be inside playing Mass Effect. Actually, if I recall correctly, I unintentionally broke a fishing rod once that was loaned to me. Back when I was a young tacker, I was in an organisation that was scout like and we'd organized a fishing trip we piled into a vw combi van and traveled to some lake in god knows where australia upon arriving i grabbed my borrowed gear and being the last to exit slammed the slide door closed unaware that the fishing rod was inexpertly carried and so had not yet exited the van i went oops extricated the rod it was not yet broken, re-slammed the door, and off we went, down to the lake. About halfway through our fishing adventure, I used that rod to make a mighty cast, and it inexplicably broke into two pieces. And of course, by inexplicably, I mean completely explicably, given the aforementioned slamming. I haven't fished since then. I don't really want to again. But today's story does feature fishing and quiet activity practiced by two friends whom you may know. Dear listeners, Podcastle proudly presents James and Peter Fishing by Anaya Lay. And this, my friends, yet again is a Podcastle original. Anaya Lay lives in Seattle, Washington, where she sells real estate under a different name. She also writes, cooks, plays board games, takes gratuitous walks, runs the Strange Horizons fiction podcast, and plots to take over the world. And why wouldn't you? Her work has appeared in a variety of venues, including Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Unidentified Funny Objects 4, and Escape Pot. She tweets as at Anaya Lay and lives online at www.anayalay.com. Your narrator, whom we're glad to welcome for the first time, is Thomas Busby. Links will be in the show notes. And now grab your tackle and bait box, your rod and reel, and come down to the lake. And while you're fishing there, enjoy the story. James and Peter, Fishing 
by Anaya Lay. James's boots clanged against the dock planks as he strode out over the water. It was a quiet morning, the sun just breaking over the horizon, the water lapping gently against the dock supports. The loudest noises were the creaks of the ship shifting slightly in the gentle breeze. James took a deep breath, smelling salt and fish, and reminded himself that this was another morning in hell. He settled down at the end of the dock, his tackle box to one side, his pail to the other. His prosthetic glinted in the morning light as he readied his fishing rod and selected his favourite lure. As he cast off, he spotted Peter at the horizon, late as usual. Ten minutes later, the sprightly boy alighted on the dock next to James, his own fishing rod and tackle box in hand. His face was bleary. Traces of sleep clung to the edges of his eyes. James said nothing. This world might be unchanging, but he did not have to endlessly comment on it. Peter caught a fish right away, though James had seen no sign of any prey. It was always so. The mermaids followed Peter and brought fish to his line. They would sit there all morning while Peter caught fish after fish and James reeled in seaweed. The crocodile would arrive around noon when they broke for lunch. Last week was fun, Peter said mid-morning. I'm sure, James said. You've mended the sails already. Earlier that week, James had kidnapped the mermaid princess and trapped her in a tank suspended from the rigging of his ship. He felt oppressed by the weight of another day fishing with Peter, another piece of this alleged paradise conspiring against him. It was a futile gesture. Of course, Peter would fly through the rigging, buzzing the crew like a rapid bat before shredding the sails and sending the lovingly crafted tank shattering against the deck. James could have killed the mermaid princess right then as she writhed amidst the mess of broken glass and metal, suffocating in the humid afternoon air. But what was the point? She was meant to be immortal. She belonged here. She was a victim of Peter's thrall every bit as much as James. That was the thought that raged through him as he flung the mermaid from his deck, leaving her to crash back into the ocean and flee with bruised fins and torn scales. They were all Peter's victims, co-prisoners, compatriots. Hurting them was just persecuting a fellow victim. James stood at his deck railing, watching the ripples in the surface that marked the mermaid's flight, and wept. Peter didn't notice. He was distracted with shredding the sails. They're nearly mended, James said. I think I'll take the boys for a powwow with the Indians next week, Peter said. It was an instruction. James would have to kidnap Tiger Lily. He'd demand some ransom of her father. Come to think of it, he could use a resupply of his tobacco stalls. Or he could break the pattern, leave the Indian chief's daughter alone and attack Peter directly. If they descended on a camp at dusk, could they catch Peter while he was distracted with his games and finally free the island of him? Certainly not. But it would be something different. A respite, as it were, from this ceaseless script of antagonism and failure. 
The sun just crested over the horizon as James settled at the end of the dock. The water teemed with fish today and James eagerly baited his line. If he was quick, he might catch something before Peter arrived, assuming the mermaids didn't arrive ahead of their boy captor. If he caught something, if this once he could dine on a fish he caught on his own, that would soothe the tragedy from the Indian encounter. His men had set an ambush around the Indian camp as instructed. They'd lain in wait until the right moment, springing out of the shadows as Peter took a long drag from the peace pipe. The Indians rushed to his defence, of course, but what defence was needed when Peter leapt into the air and flitted away at the first sign of danger, pausing just long enough to whack James's hat off his head with the pipe? Bullets from pistols and muskets flew through the air, riddling teepees in the surrounding countryside. But they only came close enough to Peter to prove that this was a moment of grand adventure. Mr. Smee, the boatswain, acted on instinct, grabbed the vulnerable tiger lily as she stoically called for Peter and followed the general retreat all the way back to the ship, the girl thrown over his shoulders. Something to show for our troubles, Captain, Smee had said. James rewarded him, tied the girl to the mast, then watched as Peter shredded the sails and rescued the girl. Again. Peter was late to arrive today, but it didn't matter. The mermaids came to the fishing appointment before James, and he'd caught nothing. Mediocrity and repetition. The life of an immortal. We all know you're a fraud, James said. What? You're supposed to be the embodied spirit of childhood innocence, free of worldly taint, the boy who never grew up. I don't ever want to grow up. I'll be a boy forever, Peter confirmed. That's a lie. Adults wish they'd never grown up. Children long for the freedom of adulthood. You're a nostalgic old man playing at childhood. That's not true. You can't realize that being an adult is oppressive unless you've been in the adult world. Grown-ups are always in a hurry. They never play games. They frown, Peter said. And you've walked with them enough to notice that. You didn't freeze. You took a step back. You're tainted, Peter. James expected him to fly away, but he sat there, fishing, rod in hand, and sniffled. That went on until lunch. Part of James wanted to put a reassuring hand on Peter's shoulder. Another part wanted to gut the first part and the boy too. They sat like that in silence until the crocodile arrived with its steady tick, tick, tick. Neither of them caught any fish that day. It rained the next four days. There was no sign of Peter. This was a novelty, and James was thrilled. He'd finally, finally managed to hurt the boy. Not even the tick, tick, ticking of the crocodile as it endlessly circled the ship could dint James's good humour. James spent the first two days of the rain locked in his cabin, reading. He hesitated over a stack of books given to him by Master Teach as a farewell gift, thick volumes by some scandalous French writers, then went instead for his bound copy of Shakespeare's plays. First, the comedies, Two Gentlemen of Verona, 
as you like it, much ado about nothing, but not a midsummer night's dream. He dallied briefly with the histories, Richard III, but by the end of the second day he'd fallen heavily into tragedies, Othello, King Lear. When he realised with horror that he'd just read Titus Andronicus, not once, but twice in a row, he pushed the volume away and went up to take a turn on the deck. Rain was normally a sporadic thing here, coming forth in a brief shower of perpetual adolescent misery and resolving ten minutes later. James hypothesised an underground river near the surface of the entire island. It was the only way to explain the lush vegetation covering it given that the years might pass between proper rain showers. James stood at the bow of his ship and examined what he could see of the shore through the grey, drizzled mist. If there were an underground river, this rain should reveal evidence of it. James let his inner naturalist break forth for the first time in years. If he went hiking on the island, what drainage patterns should emerge? Would there be differences in the growth density of the vegetation? Before he realised it, James was scribbling in his notebook, planning the expedition he would take onto the island. He was still trapped in hell, but the devil was out on holiday. It took the next two days to gather the supplies and finish the plans for his expedition. The sun rose behind a thick bank of clouds on the fifth day of rain. James and his men readied their gear and marched through the harbourside village toward the jungle. It felt good to exercise his intelligence again, to spend his energies in pursuit of scholarly knowledge. James hoisted a sack of supplies along with the rest of his men and trudged through the mud, head held high and a smile on his face. This reminded him of his first naturalist expedition. He'd just graduated from Eton, a young man not quite nineteen, devoted to the study of language and literature. He could recite long passages of poetry in Latin, Greek, French and English. Still, he had no small amount of talent in mathematics and the natural sciences, and it were here his father wished him to focus. Though he longed to go to London to mix with the literary society, he accepted his teacher's offer to accompany him on an expedition to the tropics. James, it turned out, had excellent sea legs and suffered not one moment of seasickness, even during the worst storms. His teacher was not so fortunate, and he grew wan and sickly on the voyage. By the time they docked at Tortuga, the man was near death, and a week on the island finished him off. Thus James was left with no patron and the sole occupancy of a tiny cabin crammed with naturalist supplies and tools. One black evening, two weeks out of Tortuga, the ship was beset by pirates flying a black flag with a skeletal demon spearing blood-red hearts. James remembered finding the hearts discordantly reminiscent of a valentine, even as the first cannon roared. Only three cannon shots were fired. It took that long for the ship's first mate to throw the captain overboard and raise the white flag to the pirates. No member of the crew spoke against this behaviour because all recognised the dire threat of that particular pirate flag and none wished to die a grisly death over the captain's misguided notion of honour. James found the whole affair exhilarating and he could barely contain his need to wax poetic in response. Edward Teach loved Shakespeare too. 
Months passed where James worked as Blackbeard's boatswain. Young James studied the craft of piracy from its very master, while Master Teach enjoyed the company of a young man who could trade soliloquies and share scenes during the long nights at sea. James counted himself lucky to have found a way to indulge his particular passions while fulfilling his father's deepest wish that his second son would go out into the world and make his fortune. And he continued to count himself lucky until the blockade of Charleston. The captain of the second largest ship in Blackbeard's fleet fell sick and died as the small armada gathered off the South Carolina coast. It was meant as a compliment, as a reward, but James was devastated when Commodore Teach promoted his young boatswain to replace the fallen captain. The crew were good, disciplined men who knew their trade and plied it eagerly, but they were the uneducated second and third sons of ignorant peasants. James missed his mentor and respected him too much to voice a single protest. Then, accident of fate... Hell reached out to acquire the most storied pirate of all time, enveloping his ship in a bank of fog and whisking it away to the other world, and it had sloppy aim. The novice, bored with command and lonely for mature company, had his fate co-opted to fulfil the adventured fantasies of a prepubescent brat. The small expedition had penetrated only a mile into the jungle when the overblown firefly descended, stealing James's hat and carrying it to a branch just out of reach. Mr. Smee was quick to draw his pistol and take aim at the fairy. James sighed, knowing before the gun fired that there would be a new hole in his hat and the fairy would escape unscathed. And just so... The slain hat fell to the ground while she sped away in a puff of glittery dust. A moment later she reappeared and perched on the end of James's nose. Apologise to Peter, she demanded, her tiny voice a shambles of sing-song bell ringing. I will not, James said, grinning despite himself. You're a nasty old man. I am, James agreed. Hell had aged him. Then he swatted at her with his prosthetic. He'd managed to poison her once, and it was still one of his few happy memories of this place. Then she hadn't died, delivering a moment of such heart-wrenching frustration that he regretted his cleverness. He'd suspected at the time that she was the real power behind this hell, that it was her influence that kept this world trapped as a plaything for Peter. He indulged in fantasies of rescuing the boy from the fairy's machinations and taking him back to the world, educating him, giving him the gifts James had so valued. Oh, the lies you tell yourself to give hell some variety. The rain broke an hour later. James knew this was a bad sign, but he was too invested in the expedition and the good mood engendered to give up over a change in the weather? He was too desperate to maintain his sense of victory over the child devil to acknowledge the strange rumbling in the ground or the disconcerting sounds of splintering trees further in the jungle. By the time the wave of mud came into sight, James was in fully-fledged denial. The mountain was on the other side of the island. A mudslide should not reach them here. 
Yet the expedition was shoved back to the village at the harbour by a heavy wash of mud and rock all the same. A rainbow crowned the ship when James returned, mud-stained and dragging the ruined sacks of supplies and equipment he'd lovingly prepared for the trip. He'd been wrong to hope. He was permitted on the island only if he were plotting some scheme that would fulfil Peter's thrill-seeking needs. Nothing so boring as a scientific expedition could be allowed. Worse yet, James's attempt to violate this rule seemed to have rescued Peter from his depression, undoing the single small victory James had obtained in all this time trapped here. James sat at his desk, ignoring the stacks of books and manuscripts scattered around it from his haste in packing. He hunched in his great leather chair and picked away at the heavy wooden desk, scratching away at the wood with his prosthetic. He was trapped, stuck here for eternity, just as surely as the crocodile would always circle the ship with its incessant tick, tick, tick. The mermaids were floating at the surface when James arrived at the dock. James had never seen them so at ease, stretched languorously amid the beds of seaweed, their long hair trailing about them in the water, even as the dawn light glinted off their scales and oily skin. He stood at the edge of the dock, tackle box in one hand, fishing rod balanced in his prosthetic, and watched them. What was the correct term for a group of mermaids? Were they a pod, like whales, or a school, like fish? James watched them as the sun crept above the horizon, torn between relishing the sight and taking advantage of their slumber to finally catch a fish. He stepped onto the dock, and they came instantly awake. With melodic shrieks, they dove into the water, leaving the faintest of ripples in their wake. Only clutches of seaweed floating on the surface marked they had ever been there. James sighed and continued down the dock. Peter would be late, and James had bait to waste before he got there. James was just opening his tackle box when Peter arrived, unusually punctual. The boy put down his pail and box and settled lightly on the edge of the dock. His wild red hair floated in the breeze. "'You're jealous of me,' Peter said. "'You're old and you're a pirate,' You don't have any thoughts, and you're jealous of me. James thought about Shakespeare and Milton and Edward Teach. He thought about ocean winds, salty air, and discussing poetry by candlelight and cognac. He thought about murdering Peter. You mistake me. I hate you. Because you're jealous, Peter said. Because I am a man of learning. I was a man of the world just beginning the heights of my career. I was free of all but the obligations I most wanted to fulfill in a world that was flawed and miserable, but ultimately fair. I hate you because you took that from me to suit your capricious whims. I'm innocent and you aren't. Innocent? I've never cut off anybody's hand. The crocodile was early, too. James hadn't noticed the crocodile that first morning after the fog lifted. 
The clouds broke an hour before dawn, and James had time to study the sky and determine that the stars were all wrong. Even if he'd crossed the equator without realising it, the stars weren't in any sensible configuration. And the island's geography, when James explored it, through his telescope as the sun rose, seemed improbable. Jungles should not grow so thickly so far at the side of an active volcano. The ship was well stocked, but none of James's charts could make sense of his observations either and there was a village built up around what looked to be a splendid harbour. James gave the orders to load the guns and dock. If the locals were hostile or tried to extract a tax from him, he would raise Blackbeard's flag and take the information he needed by force. Otherwise, James was a gentleman and didn't plan to allow astrogational distress undermine that. Even without flying the flag or rolling out the guns, the town fled with shrieks of PIRATE as they anchored at the docks. James disembarked to find the village a ghost town. The villagers fled into the jungle. Try as he might, he couldn't coax a single one to come speak with him. He bribed, cajoled, threatened, begged. Then a young boy, dressed in a collection of green and brown rags, called to him from a rooftop. Oi! Look at you, you old codfish. Pardon? James asked. I said you're a codfish, the boy said. Then he stepped off the roof and floated lightly to the ground. James was too astonished by the sight to register the insult. How did you do that? Rather than answer, the boy drew his sword. What's your purpose? I need bearings and a chart of the local waters, James said. You're a kidnapper. The boy said, brandishing the sword at James. I've done nothing. These people fled before I could even speak to them. It wasn't my doing, James protested. But the boy was upon him, attacking with the sword. In an instant, James had his own rapier drawn. Swordsmanship had been part of his education at Eton, and a particular area of tutelage continued by Master Teach. But James was uncomfortable with the idea of dueling a young boy, even if his feet had the remarkable tendency to leave the ground. James retreated up the dock in short order, allowing the boy to force him backwards to his ship. With more of his men to hand, James might find a way to subdue the child and examine his remarkable abilities. James thought this a clever plan, but he was playing into the boy's hands. There, before all of James's crew, Peter leapt over James's guard and swung his blade, cruelly slicing through the joint of James's wrist. James maintained his feet only through shock as the boy reached down to pick up the bleeding, severed appendage, grinning manically, then tossed it off the side of the dock to the previously unnoticed crocodile. Mr. Smee was the one who finally leapt into motion. Tying a tourniquet around his captain's wrist, even as the child devil flew away, crowing with his grotesque victory. It was Mr. Smee who stitched up James's remaining flesh and nursed him back to health, and it was Mr. Smee who went into the village to acquire James's first prosthetic. Mr. Smee, the boatswain, and a member of the crew who appeared for the first time when the fog broke. James came out of his reverie as Peter reeled in a fish. The sun was high in the sky. The mermaids were openly eavesdropping on the dock, waiting to hear Peter's response. He didn't have one. Also, James surmised from his focused dedication to gutting his catch. 
James dropped his fishing rod into the water. There was nothing to be gained by trying, so he would stop pretending. He stood up, kicked his tackle box over the side, and walked up the dock. Where are you going? Peter demanded. I quit this, James said, waving his hands in the air to indicate the world around them. This hell, this constant and unchanging Neverland. But it's not time yet, Peter called. James ignored him. He would go back to his ship and he would study. Books and shelves of notes waited for him, and if James couldn't find a way to physically leave this world, then he'd send his intellect to freedom, dedicating himself to his academic pursuits. No more plotting to escape or to destroy Peter. Henceforth, James would be a scholar, nothing more. James had a chance to kill Peter just once. He had tried many, many times, but never managed to pin the child devil to the ground, blade against his throat, the end of his prosthetic resting under his eye. He'd been lucky, catching the boy while he was in a sullen mood and sneering him before the chase could liven his spirits. Years had passed already, James's youth lost to the timelessness engulfing him, and finally he had the power over his captor. Never in all his life had James been so frightened. What if he were wrong and Peter wasn't the key to this prison? The island answered his every whim, yes, but he might be trapped in his role, like James. Even in his time with Master Teach, James had never slain a child. But letting Peter escape would be unconscionable. The mere thought was tantamount to giving up and accepting eternity here. James, who felt so stifled at the times he could barely breathe, would not let this chance slip away. He snarled, dragging his blade down to the boy's chest, pressing the tip over his heart. How old are you? Peter asked. Pardon? That hesitation was fatal. The damned pixie had arrived, and suddenly James was choking on a cloud of her dust, his eyes watering with it. Seconds later, Peter was gone crowing and howling about death being an adventure for another day. James tried suicide, but it never worked. Now he was trying rebellion. James paced his cabin, too restless to read or study. He thought of launching another expedition, but that was surely doomed. Then he came to a decision and, not wanting to give the island time to thwart him, rushed to the deck to implement it. Raise anchor. We're leaving, James said. How? We have no bearing, no guide, Smee said. I'd rather drown on the open sea than sit here another hour. Hoist the sails. They left the tide, the crocodiles swimming along in their wake. Tick, tick, ticking. James stood in the bow, exhilarated to be taking action, and nervous as a tall bank of dark grey clouds rolled in from the ocean. They'd done this before, oh, dozens of times, but he'd always taken time first to provision, to call his crew back in from the village. Their stores were empty. Half a dozen of their men stood at the shore, watching them go, and still the clouds came. Surely it must take time to build up the front, for it to arrive. If they pressed hard enough, they could outrun it, escape its reach. Smee shook his head mournfully as the first raindrops hit the deck. 
he slumped away when the winds picked up and the ship began to roll on the water, muttering darkly that this is what comes of letting the island put a child in charge. James watched him go, but did not order them back to the harbour. He'd rather drown than return. The lightning strikes were so piercingly bright that, though they were constant, James was blind. Winds tore the sails from their rigging and they were rendered into tatters. The ship had long ceased creaking, opting instead to splinter as the gale assaulted it. James retreated to his cabin, determined to thwart tides or currents that would seek to sweep him from the deck and drive him back to the shore. The windows in his cabin were shattered, the room rapidly filling with rain as the ship rode even lower in the water. Papers flew around the cabin, caught up in the storm and thrown about, even as seawater soaked through the bindings of his books. James sat down at his desk, his hand resting on the stack of books given to him by Master Teach, the scandalous French screeds. He'd never read them. The realisation struck him as lightning hit the main mast. All this time they'd rested on his desk, but James had never cracked their covers. This was his last chance. He reached for the volume at the top of the stack. The ship rolled, its planks screaming as it did, and it went under a great wave, the ocean depths sucking it down to its sandy bed. James was thrown from his chair, scrambling suddenly to escape the wrecked hull of his ship, find the surface, to breathe. It was dark, and everywhere James turned, he met a wooden barricade, the deck, the ceiling, the wall. James was drowning, books floating in the water around him, their ink ran, a substitute for the panicked, joyful tears James could not shed. He was drowning, and, at last, he would be free. He woke the next morning atop the sheets of his bed, his ruined clothes and the salt cake in his hair and beard, the only proofs he'd made an effort. Another fishing appointment. James brought his box and rod. They'd return to their normal place after the storm, but he did not cast a line or even open the box. He came because the day would not progress until he did, and he waited for Peter because the boy had no concept of time. When Peter arrived, he too sat down his implements and made no motion to use them. After a moment, he turned to James, his shaggy red hair catching in the morning breeze, I don't know why I'm here, Peter said. Because you're a coward, James said. You're too afraid to leave. I can't leave, Peter said. I mean, not permanently. I try, but I always wind up back here again. I went to an orphanage once to see if maybe I could stay if they found parents for me. I went to the bed in the orphanage and woke up in my secret lair in the forest. James thought about that moment. He drowned and woke up in his own bed. Could the boy really be another prisoner? How old are you? Peter asked. James was taken aback as he'd been the last time Peter asked. It was a difficult question to answer. He'd been nineteen when he was brought here, but how many years had passed since then? To look in a mirror he was middle-aged, but Surely he'd been in this hell several scores of years. I think you're just a boy, Peter said. You're still desperate to grow up. No, 
James said. You've aged. Nobody here ages. The crocodile swam under the dock. Tick, tick, tick. Young James had studied the craft of piracy from its very master. While Master Teach enjoyed the company of a young man who could trade soliloquies and share scenes during the long nights at sea. But Master Teach did not share everything with his young boatswain, thinking some items in his library inappropriate for the young, untested man. Scandalous French text. He forbade James to pursue them. This admonishment irked James, who, late one night, while the captain prowled the deck, stole into the cabin and tore into the books. He was so absorbed he did not hear Master Teach until he was discovered. Then he learned what it was to face Blackbeard's wrath. James fled the cabin, screaming, then wept when he was sent in disgrace to serve another captain, banished from his sole companion for being too rash and immature to follow instructions. The fog found him that night, and he woke the next morning a pirate captain, middle-aged and lost in a strange land. James had forgotten. No, not fresh from Eton, but longing to follow his elder brother there. Not a boatswain, a cabin boy. He'd been twelve, not nineteen. Oh, the lies you tell yourself. We've trapped ourselves here, James said. He, with his longing for adulthood, Peter with his fear of death. I quite like it, don't you? This world bends to you. Mudslides attack me while the mermaids load your lines with fish. No, you've just never learned how to fish properly. Here, I'll show you. Peter took James's fishing rod and reeled it in. Then, as James sat down next to him, started to lecture about the virtues of different kinds of bait. The sun rose high above the horizon as Peter demonstrated the best technique for loading James's hook. And welcome back. So, you know when I said it was two friends fishing? Well, maybe they weren't quite friends there at the beginning. But maybe they are at the end? Let's turn now to feedback and to our assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at Podcastle. I hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for Podcastle, episode number 407. The Cellar Dweller by Maria Devana Headley. It seems that this story conjured up thoughts of delicious food. Irish Laz said, Dark chocolate, dark beer, dark stories. I enjoyed this, but I might need to hear it again. I didn't pick up on the nevermore beginning the same on both ends of the 25 years. Adrian H said, Well, this was just tasty from start to finish. From the slow reveal of the protagonist's initial age and nature through to the final oh-so-lovely and dark ending. There's things she'll never be allowed to have again, but she can live without them. Shiver. 
I echo everybody else's positive comments on the narration. Excellent throughout, especially because I have a terrible mental tick of having to mentally find a tune to match lyrics that appears in the text, which usually rips me away from the story for a while. Having Miss Connolly do all that hard work for me and pull out the rhythms and repetitions that I often miss on an initial read made it a really great listening experience. Thanks to all. Mass Power loved this story. I was hooked from the beginning with the way the author played with language and rhyme, and the narrator did an amazing job bringing those bits to life. But I'm even more enthralled with that ending. I really didn't call it going in such a dark direction, as much as there were a lot of details that should have tipped me off. I admittedly had a bit of trouble following the time jumps in a few places, but it was well worth the effort. I love a good dark ending, and this story pulled that off in spades. What's more, it really got me curious about this world. It's rare that a story makes me chomp at the bit to find more works in the same setting, but this one absolutely did. Thank you, Irish Laz, Adrian H., Mass Power, and everyone else who stopped by to comment. Keep coming to let us know what you think of our stories. I, for one, love hearing your varied, intelligent, and thoughtful comments about the stories we produce. For those of you who didn't leave a comment this time, I sure hope you'll jump into the fray on the next go-round by visiting the Escape Artist Forum at forum.escapeartists.net. We would love to hear your thoughts. Well, that's it for now but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Peace. Thanks, Kalita. And now it's time to say goodbye, but remember, things go away to return, brightened for the passage. On behalf of all of us here at PodCastle, our four moderators, Ossicat and Talia, our audio producer, Peter Wood, our associate editors, Arun Jiwa, Setsu Uzumi, Christiana Formella, Troy Wiggins, and Aidan Doyle. Our assistant editor, Khalida Muhammad Ali. Your co-editors, Jen R. Albert, and myself. Thank you so very much for stopping by and sharing the story with us. We'll be back next week with another. But until then... This is your host, Graham Dunlop, reminding you of your to-do list this week. 1. Kidnap Tiger Lily. 2. Demand some ransom of her father. 3. Resupply your tobacco stores. Hey everyone, Alistair here. So, we're rounding the corner on 2016's halfway mark, and it's been a really busy six months for us. In that time, we've brought all our shows up to SFWA qualifying pay rates for authors, started rolling out narrator pay, and have added not one, but two new members to the EA family, Mothership Zeta and Cast of Wonders. If you donate, thank you so much, because without you, seriously, absolutely none of this would be possible. We have, across the four podcasts... Over 400,000 downloads a month. That's amazing, and it marks us out as one of the biggest genre fiction markets on the planet. Of those 400,000 listeners, by the way, a mere 1% donate. One. 
Now, the shocking thing about that is that's actually an average number for creative projects like us. Believe me, we dream of what we'd be able to do if that doubled to 2% or even 5. That orbital control satellite that's been sitting in the Amazon basket would finally be mine for a start. 1%. That's the average. But nothing about this audience is average. So if you can, please donate or subscribe. Donations are wonderful. Subscriptions make all the difference, give you access to premium content, and start at as little as two bucks a month. There are links on every homepage for the shows, and it's so, so appreciated. Please be extraordinary, and help us be extraordinary too. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at shiva-in-exile.de. The charm of fishing is that it is the pursuit of what is elusive but attainable, a perpetual series of occasions for hope. So said John Buchan. <laughs>